Well, if you are a visitor here with us this morning, we are beginning 2022 by spending some time in the Psalms. Uh, Last week, we started by talking about Psalm 1. And uh, this morning, I want to study two different Psalms uh, wherein we find um, unbelief being described. The first is found in Psalm 14, and the second form of unbelief will be found in Psalm 50. Uh, But before we get to that, let me share with you this general truth about why I want to begin 2022 by spending time in the Psalms. Uh, the, The frustration with people who are not real with you is that although you can become friends with some version of them, you never truly become friends with them. Not really. We all want to be known, and we all want to be loved, but perversely, some of us fear that if we ever really were truly known, we would, <laughs> we, would not be lo- we would not be loved. So we put up a facade, a false front. Authenticity is at the root of real relationship. But perversely, our desire for relationship is what prevents some people from being authentic. It's a cold world that we live in. And so human beings have learned to dress their hearts in layers and to wear disguises when we're out amongst other people. What God desires to draw us into is a relationship with him. And when we spend time in the Psalms, we find God encouraging us to be worshipfully honest and real and authentic in his presence. Consider some of the difficult but honest things that the psalmists say to God. Psalm 42, your waves have gone over me. Psalm 39, you have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. Psalm 44, you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. Psalm 44, you have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Psalm 79, we've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? How will you be angry forever? Psalm 60, you have made your people see hard things. And yet in the midst of all that, we also read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Psalm 139, you know me. God has searched you. He knows you. And he loves you. I can say these things with bedrock certainty. And what I want us to see in this list of verses from the Psalms is the way that the writers of the Psalms pour out their their hearts to God in transparent authenticity without ever denying the existence or the goodness or the power or the wisdom of God. They are often confused. And they give voice to their confusion in a full-throated way. 
while at the same time clinging with a white-knuckle grip to what they know to be true with certainty, that God exists as the ultimate reality and that he is good. God is what the writers of the Psalms lean against as they get their bearings in the midst of confusing and painful circumstances. Reading the Psalms, it's almost like their toes are searching for the edge of the stairs in the dark while they cling to the banister that is firmly fixed in place. They explore the unknown. They seek to understand and interpret the bad things that are happening to them, in them, around them. As they cling with bedrock certainty to what they know of God. God is the context, the parameters in which they explore the world. So much of the Psalms is a leaning into God when everything else they might have been tempted to lean on has fallen out from under them. There is a lot of head-scratching, raw emotion, difficult questions in the Psalms, and this is what sets apart the worshipful honesty of the Psalms from the bitter, empty complaints of those who deny God. Our first verse for this morning that I want to explore with you all is Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I think one of the reasons why somebody might be tempted to say there is no God is precisely because of this list of psalms I just wrote, I just read. God, my life is but a handbreadth. I'm dying. Where are you? You don't exist. Bad things are happening. You've made me see hard things. Where are you? You don't exist. But God says... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this naturally leads to another question. Well, what exactly is a fool then? I, I, I know we all have notions of what it is to be a fool, but I want to really be exact in my language. I shared with you last week that um, the preachers I really enjoy and admire are those who always talk to people who are disagreeing with them. Uh, I think this should always be the goal. And I expressed some discomfort last week with the language of Psalm 1 where people are described as wicked and chaff, which is insulting. And now it's ratcheted up even further. Fool. That word lands, I think, on the ears of somebody who may not believe in God in a very heavy sort of way. And I want to be understood on this point. When God says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. First of all, he's making a universal statement. He is not saying um, uh, some fools don't believe in God. He's not even saying a fool might say this kind of thing, uh, and, but, you know, educated and wise people don't. Uh, he's, he's not even saying some wise and educated people say there's no God, but fools say it also. He is making a categorical, universal statement to say there is no God is definitionally foolish. This is what God says. And again, this naturally leads to this question, well, what does God mean when he says 
that that's the idea of a fool. I think we get some insight into the meaning of this word from the next verse in Psalm 14. Verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then in the next verse, verse 2, it says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. So when we put verses 1 and 2 together, we see that a fool is someone who lacks understanding. And as a result of not understanding, they do not seek God. And in fact, they say in their hearts, there is no God. In verse 1, we are also shown, I think, why this person has failed to understand the ultimate reality of God that surrounds them. As this person faces tough questions in life, as we all will, where have they been looking for answers? And on what do they base their understanding of what is true? It says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Uh, Years ago, I was on vacation with my family, and somebody made the horrible mistake of bringing along a bag of Dove chocolates, which I think I ate every single last one. <laughs> it's kind of one of those uh, vacations where like Sarah goes, hey, where did the Dove chocolates go? And I'm like, uh, kids, I think, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, my pockets are full of these little foil wrappers. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, it's kind of one of, like that time I was helping Sarah look for her candy bar that I had eaten the night before. <laughs> How do you get out of that? <laughs> I don't <know. laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, do- the good people at Dove Chocolate Bar, on the inside of their foil wrappers, they uh, print these little pithy, kind of inspiring statements. Here's one. Listen with your heart. Listen with your heart. Here's another one. Go where your heart takes you. Go where your heart takes you. And then my personal favorite, trust with your heart, not your head. This is the advice of Dove Chocolate. (laughs) But really, our culture is rife with this kind of thing. Just chock full of this advice, to listen to your heart, not your head. I I want you to know this, uh, folks, and and this is a truth. I I mean, I, I really believe it with all my heart. Whether or not a person should drink from a cup depends entirely on what has been poured into that cup. Isn't that true? Cups are neutral. Cups are a vessel. What you pour into it determines whether you put it to your lips and drink it. A cup of hot cocoa is one thing, a cup of antifreeze is completely another. And we need to understand that this is the exact same thing as the human heart. Dove chocolate isn't wrong exactly. Human beings do listen with their heart. I, I, it's not that that's wrong. I'm not saying that Christians should deny their heart. I'm just saying Christians should be very careful about what has formed their heart. 
In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The advice there is not to deny your heart. It's saying, guard that thing with all vigilance. Because some people even arrive at the very foolish place of saying in their heart, there is no God. So what we find in our hearts is what we have poured into it. Speaking of evildoers who delight in wickedness and who abuse the poor, David says this. In Psalm 10, he says, speaking about that kind of person, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will never meet adversity. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. Or what about Psalm 36? Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. I shall not be moved. I will not meet adversity. God has forgotten. He didn't see it. He's not going to do anything about it. Do you see what has happened to this person? He has poured into his heart all sorts of nonsense and error, and then he drinks from it. This phrase, he says in his heart, is repeated over and over and over again, each time repeated by some incredible depth of foolishness. And by that I mean a lack of understanding. And our culture seems to be teaching that how we feel should inform what we think. In fact, the opposite is true to your actual design. What we think affects how we feel. This person, this fool, says in their heart that there is no God. Now, how did this person get there? A couple of years ago, during our study of the life of David, I shared with you all a quote from an interview with the actress Jennifer Aniston, in which she said this. Jennifer Aniston sat down for an interview. You guys have all heard of Jennifer Aniston? Leading thought leader in American life. And she said, really try to follow what it is that you want to do and what your heart is telling you to do. My guess is this is just accepted in an uncritical way by most Americans. This just sounds like good advice. Really try to follow what it is that you want to do and what your heart is telling you to do. This is the advice we hear so often from prominent people and thought leaders in our culture. However, this is diametrically opposed to a Christian worldview. Someone speaking from a Christian worldview would probably say something different like, really try to follow what it is that God wants you to do and what the Bible is telling you to do. You see, the dominant worldview in our culture today says, look within yourself for truth. Listen to your heart. What do you want? Christianity says you need to look outside of yourself to find truth. 
look in the Bible. And there is a world of difference between these two pieces of advice. So a Christian looks to God and his word as truth, and they view their inner world with some degree of suspicion. Guard your heart with all vigilance, is what we say. They say, look within to you, but the culture says the opposite. They say, look within to your heart for truth and view the Bible and all these external notions about religion and God with suspicion. Your inner world is pure as the wind-driven snow. It's the Bible that's sullied and wrong. You should be suspicious of it. And, And I say the opposite. When I go to my heart to look for truth, I'm pulling water from a poisoned well. (laughs) unless I've just poured the Bible down there, glug, 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 glug. That's the only way it's safe to draw from the heart, is depending on what has formed that heart, what you've poured into it. And I know this to be true because in other Psalms, David speaks about hearts that have been filled with truth. He's not always critical of listening to your heart. Listen to this, Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. I am helped, my heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Or Psalm 27, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Or Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Now, these passages are describing hearts that have been filled with the truth of who God is. It's not that as followers of God, the writers of the Psalms don't experience confusion or disappointment or sorrow. It's just that they find meaning and comfort and hope and purpose not by denying the existence of God or His goodness, but by resting in the knowledge that He is and that He is good. He is just, faithful, unchanging, and powerful. He is a shepherd, a father, an absolutely sovereign king. These are the things that we know about God. But how do we know them? We didn't learn them by looking within. We learn them because the Bible tells us so. I think one of the most theologically deep songs, honest to goodness, and I'm not kidding here, is Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How did you know Jesus loves you? (laughs) Because you looked inside, you dug down deep, you studied how you feel about him. No, we know Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so. This is what shapes our reality. The fool says in his heart all kinds of things. But the Christian is one who leans into God. And all of our emotional experiences find meaning in their interpretation through what we know with bedrock certainty about God from this book. We can follow Jennifer Aniston and Dove Chocolate, or we can follow the Bible. Truth is either personally derived and personally held, it is a matter of opinion, or it is a matter of objective truth. 
there's very little overlap or room for compromise with these two views. They are really diametrically opposed. They are two different ways to look at and make sense of the world to arrive at truth. And oftentimes, the Psalms, I've talked about how raw, raw and honest the psalmists are. Oftentimes, the Psalms take the form of a retrospective praise offering to God after the psalmist has been brought through a season of difficulty or moral failure or confusion or disappointment or loss. And we might look back over our journeys with God and maybe you've been brought through some difficult things. In the depths of that, I mean, our lives are like this. We go up and down into the trough and then we go up again and then back down into the low spots. Life is just this constant roller coaster ride, up and down. And in those trough times, I find words in the Psalms that help me worship through the tears. <laughs> Help me worship through the difficulties. But now looking back on some seasons God has brought me through, perhaps these words from the Psalms might best describe how you feel today as you look back on those times. Psalm 30, you've drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Psalm 18, you've given me the shield of your salvation Psalm 4, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Psalm 30, you have healed me. Psalm 10, you have been the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 9, you have maintained my just cause. Psalm 30, you have turned for, my, for me my mourning into dancing. And Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The battleground for your emotions begins in the mind. Romans 12, 2 puts it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when we think about Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, I think the thing that I want to draw attention to there most is that this expression of unbelief is found by putting weight overly much on what they have found in their heart. Uh, you can't find truth there. However, there is an even deeper folly, even than saying there is no God. Guys, we have not gotten to the bottom of it yet. There is a deeper, more uh, catastrophic form of foolishness even than saying there's no God at all. And I say this is a greater folly because at least with such a person, there is some consistency. They say there's no God, and then they go out and live like it. And there's no contradiction there in a way that makes sense. However, in Psalm 50, we find folks who say, yeah, of course there's a God. But then they go out and live like he doesn't matter. This is a deeper folly, even than saying there is no God. If you want to turn with me over to Psalm 50, uh, I'm not going to be able to spend a great amount of time in this psalm. But I want you to see three charges that God brings against people in Psalm 50. 
And really the third and the last one I'm going to touch upon is the more important of the three. It's the one that from which the first two flow. But in the first charge that God brings against his people, God says that they completely and fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of sacrifices and offerings. He says this, I'm beginning in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. What I want you to see here is that these people actually think that they are giving God something, (laughs) that they're conferring some benefit upon God. I think we see this sometimes in the attitudes of folks who come to church and they feel like, I did my religious duty. I showed up. And then I went right back to my life. And God was standing there hat in hand, hoping I would show up this morning. And then I showed up, and he must be so tickled. That's a very pathetic view of God that such a person holds. God in their mind is like them. He's pathetic. He's standing there hat in hand, hoping you'll pick him for your team. Maybe you'll see some value in him. They think God is needy. And by showing up, they're thinking they're scratching his itch. And what this betrays is that they don't view themselves or God rightly. God says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) I don't want you to think you've got something over on me. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. The world and all the fullness thereof is mine. I'm God. How dare you completely misunderstand the dynamic between us? You don't bring me anything but your need. I'm God. You're a man. You're made of dust. He really lets him have it here. He's not done. He brings a second charge. The second charge that God makes against the people in Psalm 50 is that their interest in God and religion is only theoretical. This kind of reminds me of Luke 23. When Herod saw Jesus, remember this? Jesus has been arrested. He's been beaten. He's come before Pilate. Pilate says, hey, I don't want to deal with this. I'll send him over to Herod. Herod can deal with it. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. (laughs) Herod has an intellectual curiosity about Jesus. And so do the people in Psalm 50. But to the wicked, God says, verse 16, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline 
you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. God is saying here, you are speaking out of both sides of your mouth, and I am just about had it. <laughs> you, you, you can't take my words into your mouth, but not your heart. You have a theoretical, intellectual, academic interest in religious things that you do not live in the everyday of your lives. I don't want your mind, I want your heart. The true mark of a saving faith is not merely that we know the truth, but we are living the truth that we know. These people took God's words on their lips without ever receiving it into their hearts. This is why James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. These people are hearers. They're deceived. Knowing the truth matters, of course. But really, it only matters insofar as it informs how we actually live our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a man who built his life on the rock. And then in verse 26, Jesus describes the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, not as someone who was ignorant of Jesus' words and teachings, but rather as someone who heard his words and did not do them. We should not be impressed by the person with a PhD in theology who holds no special passion for following Jesus' example in how they live. Jesus said that those who love him are the ones who obey his commands, not the ones who have them memorized or have written books about them. It's a good thing to know the way, but those who find salvation and rest for their souls are those who walk in the way that they have come to know. And then we come to the third charge. And really, this is the root of the problem. This is the root of the previous two charges that God brings against these people. And I would have started it, except God, in his wisdom, laid out Psalm 50 with the third and more foundational charge coming at the end. And they say, and this charge is this, they say they believe in God, but they have substituted God's own revelation about himself with their own ideas about him. In other words... They have said in their heart some things about God that are not informed by God's word. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 21 says this, These things you have done, all those things I just described, and I have been silent, you thought I was one like yourself. This is the charge. This is the most foundational charge here. This is the depth of folly. They say there's a God, but it's a God that they've created in their own image. Voltaire, who was an atheist and no friend of Christianity, I understand this, he said, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since then, God is, man has been returning the favor. <laughs> this is a critique of organized religion. He's saying man has created a God that fills some need man has. But 
even in the folly of Voltaire's mind, he is a guy who says there is no God. There is a kernel of truth here in what he's saying, in that some people have made God in their own image. Some people have made God little better than Santa Claus. These are people who say they believe in God, they're interested in Him and in religion, yes, but the question is where do they get their ideas from? On what are they basing their view of God and what He is like? And when it says here that you thought I was one like yourself, they did not find that in the Bible. They found that in their own hearts. They've said this thing in their heart. God says, you thought I was one like yourselves. In other words, all your religion is built on a faulty view of me. And where did that come from? The answer, of course, is that is of their own invention. They say in their hearts that God is like them. And, and before we kind of say this is a problem that's out there somewhere, think about this in relationship to your own sin. Uh, we, as a Christian, I like to talk and think more about grace than sin. But sin is definitely a reality. Even those who have embraced the grace of the gospel, we continue to know that we are struggling to put off the old man. We struggle to stop sinning. There are people who know intellectually that God is everywhere. But they shove that out of their mind when they're looking at pornography. They know God is everywhere, but the house is empty. These are people who in that moment say in their heart, God is like me. If he does not strike me down at once, he will not strike at all. Maybe he didn't see it. Maybe I'm of such use to him that he's going to give me a pass on whatever the sin issue is. Or that was bad, of course, but others are worse, aren't they? I mean, he knows that on balance I'm one of the good ones. If we have ever entered into that kind of thinking as we think about our own sinfulness, here's what we're doing in that moment. We are saying of God, you are one like myself. You are someone who plays favorites. You are someone who forgets. You are somebody who stays the hand and then says, ah, okay. <laughs> That's not God. It's not true. The problem with such people is that rather than surrendering and submitting to God's lordship, they remain entirely in control. God never asks them to do anything difficult. God never asks them to deny themselves. God would never ask them to go and have a difficult conversation with a difficult person because their God is them. They've made God in their own image. God is like one such as them. God knows that they're on the side of the angels. They have an understanding. I've used this analogy in the past. Please forgive me for being too repetitious. Uh, but when I watch the westerns, my favorite part of westerns are the horses. Horses do the most unnatural thing in westerns, don't they? Uh, they I've seen them ride horses into burning saloons. They jump them out of trains. They run up alongside bears. 
I mean, they're getting shot at and doing all kinds of things that a wild horse would never do. Never. One of the proofs, I think, that the Holy Spirit has taken over the governing of my life is the extent to which I now do what is not natural to me. (laughs) There's another rider. There's somebody else at the reins. A horse just wanders aimlessly. They, They graze. They do what comes naturally to a horse. But a horse with a rider on its back charges into battle, rides into burning saloons, jumps out of moving trains, and stuff that horses would never do. And when we say we're a Christian and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are saying that somebody else is in control of our lives. Somebody else is calling the shots. Somebody else is saying how I'm going to spend my money, my free time, my vacation time. Somebody else is saying where I'm going to go, who I'm going to talk to, what I'm going to say. So what does it mean if at every point in my life, if I take inventory of my days, I am just wandering aimlessly, grazing my cud and doing nothing, nothing unnatural to me? God is like me. (laughs) He wouldn't want me to do that stuff. Of course not. And it is here that we come to this great and oft-repeated truth from Christian pulpits. Look at the last line of Psalm 50. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. In, in other words, the one, what is this person bringing to God that glorifies him? Is it a thing? Is it a debate? Is it money? Is it his presence? It is thanksgiving. In other words, what glorifies God, what's pleasing to him, is when we come to him and we say, thank you for what you've given me. (laughs) I have nothing to give you. I am grateful for you, God, for what you have done for me. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What God wants And again, this is so often repeated, it's almost trite. What God wants is your heart. In Psalm 14.1, it says that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. In Psalm 50, a people are described who give God everything. Their intellect, their time, their sacrifices. They give him everything but their hearts. He does not want your sacrifices and all that sort of thing. He is not honored and glorified by your intellectual curiosity about him. He does not want us to just be arguing theology and collecting doctrines. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be real and authentic and in relationship with him. What does God need from us? He has cattle on a thousand hills. He knows all. He owns all. The world is his and the fullness thereof. There is nothing that any person can bring to God that he needs. He is perfect in all his ways and perfectly content. Do not imagine him this morning standing there hat in hand, 
hoping that you will notice him or see value in him. We need God, not the other way around. And this is why it is the acme of foolishness to say there is no God. It demonstrates that you do not understand the depth of your need. You don't understand the peril of your predicament. There is a decided lack of understanding in the It's like somebody who's asleep on railroad tracks saying, I'm good. (laughs) You don't need God. You don't think there is a God. You don't understand. We need God, not the other way around. And even his desire that you would give him your heart has as its desired end, not that he would receive something, but that your heart would rest and be satisfied in him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when he says he wants you to give him his heart, he is not saying, give me something. He's saying, I want to give you more. Give me your heart, because that is where blessed happiness will be found. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, it is more more blessed to give than to receive. God is so perfectly full that he cannot receive from man, but can only overflow and spill out as a blessing to us. There is one thing that he asks of you. Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have spent some time this morning reflecting on the folly of unbelief. Father, we thank you for the merciful, gracious thing you have done in opening the eyes of our hearts to see our need for you. Father, we certainly have nothing to brag about. Father, as we think about the gracious, merciful thing that you have done for us, we cannot, in arrogance, say that we have arrived at any of these things through superior wisdom or depth of understanding. God, you have, in mercy and grace, shown us in your word what is true. You've given us eyes to see it, believe it, cling to it, and that is a gift from you that we can never boast in. God, we're so grateful for that. And God, maybe over the course of this time here this morning, there is one whose eyes have begun to open to the folly of their own unbelief. And God, you are beginning to stir within them an attraction to Jesus, to the gospel, to their need, and to the awesome, wonderful way that you have satisfied that need. Father, for such a one, it begins with the awareness that we are sinners, that we are separated and cut off from you. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 6.23 follows that bad news with the good news. Before there can be good news, there must be bad news. Father, the bad news is we are all separated and cut off. But in Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Father, our wage is something that we've earned, we deserve it, but you offer us all a gift, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I pray that they would accept that gift. I pray that they would turn to you, confess their sins, pray and and put their trust in Jesus for salvation. I pray that they would not keep what you are doing in their life a secret, but that they would talk to me or another Christian that they know. We could talk about next steps as a new follower of Jesus. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. God, as we go out from here today, I pray that you draw us into your word, that you'd pour good things down into our hearts, and that we would drink from it in in every season. In Jesus' name, amen.